So we're going to talk a little bit more about the book of Philippians. We've been looking at it for the past couple of weeks and reading from the letter that Apostle Paul wrote to the church that he founded in the Greek city of Philippi. As you may recall, he wrote this letter to share his gratitude and love with the Philippian Christians to give them an update on his situation and to encourage them to live together in a manner worthy of the gospel. His letter is remarkable in that Though he writes in a spirit of gratitude and joy, he is in prison, facing the possibility of execution. Last week we read what many consider to be this letter's high point, the great Christ hymn in chapter 2, in which the work of Christ is described as is emptying of divine privileges so that he might become one of us, living our life and dying our death. To live in a manner worthy of the gospel, Paul writes, oh yes, yeah, Sunday school kids, you can go. <laughs> Sorry about that. To live in a manner worthy of the gospel, Paul writes, is to have the same mind, the same attitude, the same self-giving love as Christ. Paul goes on in that chapter to share news of a couple of co-workers, Timothy and Epaphroditus, both of whom he is sending to the Philippians. And it's clear that Paul is lifting these men up as model Christians, and in gratitude for his love, their love and service, he once again urges the Philippians to rejoice in the Lord. Immediately after these words, however, there is an abrupt shift in subject matter and tone, so much so that scholars have wondered if part of another letter sort of snuck into this one. Suddenly, Paul begins to warn the Philippians about those whom he calls by the worst names he can think of, dogs, evil workers, and those who mutilate the flesh. Most scholars think that Paul is referring here to those Christians who believe that a person had to become a Jew before he or she could become Christian. In order to do that, male converts had to undergo circumcision as a sign of their participation in the Jewish covenant with God. Paul strongly opposed this idea, for he believed that all that was required to be a Christian was faith in Christ as Jesus, in Christ Jesus as one's Lord and Savior. In his eyes, to submit to circumcision was to have confidence in the flesh, as he puts it. That is, to trust in the covenant established by Jewish law rather than in God's promise of salvation through Christ. To make this point, he begins to boast. I invite you to find one of the Bibles there in the pew in front of you. If you don't have one there, reach around behind, find one. Turn to page 198 in the New Testament, 198 and to follow along as Brenda reads, page 198, starting at verse 4b. Okay. If anyone else has reason to be confident in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, a member of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Yet whatever gains I had, These I have come to regard as lost because of Christ. More than that, I regard everything as lost because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and I regard them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but one that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the sharing of his sufferings by becoming like him in his death, if if somehow I may attain the resurrection from the dead. 
Not that I have already obtained this or have already reached the goal, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Beloved, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but this one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the heavenly call of God in Christ Jesus. Thank you. Thank you. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You can see why I wanted you to read along, I think. You can keep it out if you want to. It's all right. <laughs> Paul certainly does not hold back. Look, he said to the Philippians, no one can match my credentials <clears throat> as a Jew. And he was right. <clears throat> Paul had it all, an impeccable ped pedigree, a remarkable knowledge of Jewish law, an equally remarkable ability to keep that law, and the passion to thwart any challenge to the Jewish faith, including persecuting Christians. He had every reason to be confident of his status in the eyes of God. And then he found Jesus Christ, or rather, Christ found him. As he writes in the first chapter of his letter to the Galatians, God, who had set me apart before I was born and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me. And with that revelation, everything in Paul's life changed. Yet whatever gains I had, he writes, these I have come to regard as lost because of Christ. More than that, I regard everything as loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I regard them as rubbish, literally excrement, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but one that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. Paul has taken the balance sheet of his life as a Jew and moved everything from the positive column to the negative. His credentials as a Jew had become absolutely worthless to him, and now the only thing in that positive column is his relationship with Christ. He speaks truth when he says he has suffered the loss of all things, for he has given up not only his status as a Jew, but also friends, family, home, uh, the esteem of colleagues, stability, even his liberty. Yet there is no sense of regret or expression of sorrow in his words. On the contrary, he writes with gratitude and wonder, even joy. Why? Because when he found Christ, he discovered a relationship that was not based on ethnicity or knowledge or following the rules, but on grace and grace alone a relationship that offered him purpose and meaning and joy in this life and the promise of resurrection in the life to come. Paul has only one desire now, to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the sharing of his sufferings by becoming like him in his death, if somehow I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Now let's unpack that statement. <laughs> when Paul says he wants to know Christ, he's using a Greek word that indicates Complete knowledge, complete head understanding. He knows the facts. It's also used to describe an experiential, more intimate knowledge. Paul wants to be in relationship with Christ in the deepest way possible. 
To that end, we, he desires to experience both the power of Christ's resurrection and to share in his sufferings. Now, we also cling to the promise that there will be life after death. But resurrection was more than just a future hope for Paul. He also wanted to experience at a present, as a present reality. David Lose writes, Paul wants his every present moment from ministry in, local, in various locales in the ancient world to the fellowship he enjoyed with the Philippians to the prison cell in which he currently lives to be infused by the hope and confidence of the resurrection. In this sense, Paul anticipates the good end to which the rest of his, which his story will come and allows the knowledge of that ending to color all the rest of its details. Resurrection notwithstanding, I find Paul's other desire to share in Christ's sufferings to be difficult to understand. I'm not interested in coming together and suffering, I know. Again, David Lowe's is helpful. He writes, this is not a desire for suffering, for suffering's sake. Rather, Paul perceives that to receive authentic life, that which we had formerly accepted as life, must pass away. There is a purging away of the old life that is always painful. For new life makes no sense apart from death. And so the path of resurrection always leads through the cross. Curiously, however, Paul doesn't start with suffering and then anticipate resurrection. Rather, it is the hope and promise of resurrection that invites his willingness not just to endure suffering, but to transcend it. Such is the power of the promises of God. Let me turn now from Paul's situation to that of our church. Over the past month, you were asked to take a survey called the Readiness 360 Survey about our church. Taking the survey is the first step in a 15-month process toward a revitalization of the ministry and mission of our 103-year-old church. This process is being guided by Reverend Nicole Riley, Director of New Ministries for our conference, and it is being funded by our apportionment giving. When the church council voted to join this process in July, a strong team was formed, and I'm going to ask those who are here today to stand now, if they are, it, who's here. Bibi Buchan, Catherine Bienvenue, Mark Haney, Ellie Mackey, Don Carlisle, Brad Stein, Krista Martinez, and Colin Elder. I think a number of our folks are upstairs with the kids are out today. You can sit down. Thank you. I'm very pleased to report that 43 people took the survey, and last Saturday our Readiness 360 team met with the other West District churches in our cohort to learn more about the process to review the results of the survey. You'll find an overview of those results in your bulletin, and I invite you to turn to that insert now. This survey is an assessment of our church's spiritual and practical ability, or excuse me, readiness, not ability, readiness for faithful and effective ministry in the 21st century, our spiritual MRI, as Reverend Nicole put it. It's us assessing us at a moment of time in our church's life, and it looks at four capacities for multiplying thriving ministries, spiritual intensity, dynamic relationships, missional alignment, and cultural openness. The higher the scores, designated by rabbit logos, 
the more multiplication energy our church has and the more ready we are to start something new, whatever that might be. As you can see from the rabbits, we are at the second level in all four categories, which simply means that we are not ready. This may not come as a surprise to many of you, and it certainly didn't come as a surprise to members of the team. Of course, we'd like to think that we are more ready in many respects or even more than ready, and seeing this report may feel a little disheartening. It may be helpful for you to know that most of the churches in our cohort, our group, have similar scores and that our multiplication energy is normal for first churches, that is, for churches who have been long established and churches in suburban areas. While churches with scores like ours may be in decline, we look very functional and we still have leadership capacity and can move forward. In other words, friends, we ain't dead yet. Which brings me back to Paul's words. He writes, not that I have obtained this, that is the resurrection, or have already reached the goal, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. As much as he desires to know Christ, as try as he, excuse me, as hard as he tries to have the mind of Christ, as much as he wants to have the power of Christ's resurrection, Paul knows he is not there yet. He has not yet achieved his goal, and there is no guarantee that he will, at least in this life. But that does not keep him from trying. Indeed, knowing that there is a goal gives him the courage to attempt to reach it, to move forward, to strive for a deeper relationship with the one who is everything to him. He does this not out of fear, but out of the deep faith in the promises of God and the love of Christ who has made me his own. He writes, Beloved, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but this one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the heavenly call of God in Christ Jesus. As we look at this survey, and indeed as we look at our own lives, we need to remember first and foremost that we have been found by Christ. Whether we know it or not, every one of us here today has had our lives touched by God. Even little Sloan, who's too young to even heard of God and yet has been claimed by God's own through her baptism. Likewise, though we honor the men and women who built this church and have kept it going for 103 years, this church exists because of Christ. And it is by God's grace and power that it has and will continue. For too long, friends, we have looked toward the glory of the past, longing for the time when the pews were full, our Sunday school was overflowing, our budget was fully funded, and our church was a strong influence in our city. That time was good. But that is no longer our situation. And while we are certainly not ready to discard our history and past accomplishments and, as rubbish, in a sense, we need to give thanks to God for those blessings and then to let them go, to forget what has gone before, for the past cannot be recovered, nor should it. We live in a very different time, a time of new possibilities and new challenges, as events like the shooting in Las Vegas make all too clear. 
And so instead of clinging to the past, we need to follow Paul's lead and straining forward to what lies ahead, press on to the future that God has in store for us. And this is as true for our lives as it is for this congregation. As I told the children, each and every one of us, in his or her own way, is running a race of life. And we choose the way we run it. We can spend our time looking back at the road we've traveled, longing for what was. We can stay in the same place, immobilized by apathy or fear. Or we can keep the prize of the heavenly call of God in Christ Jesus in our sights and pressing on, run with hope and courage and strength. Granted, this is no easy task. Susan Eastman writes, We, like Paul, are no longer to find our life, our purpose, our worth, our identity in the past, but only in the discovery of who we are in Christ. This is incredibly liberating good news. It is also scary, perhaps insulting, and certainly difficult to grasp and comprehend. God continually wrenches us from what is comfortable and familiar and tugs us into the glorious future of the children of God. No, running is not always easy, and there are times when we stumble or go off course. Likewise, as our church goes through the readiness 360-plus process, there will be moments when we wonder what the outcome will be, and I can't promise that there won't be discomfort, even losses along the way. What I can promise is, first, that our team will do everything it can to help our church run its best, and second, that the Holy Spirit will be running with us. I hope that you will read this report and think about it. If you have questions, I invite you to talk to members of the team. While we don't know much about the process yet, we don't know much about what each of these categories means yet, or what we'll be doing, we will do our best to answer you. Right now, our focus is on increasing our own spiritual life together, growing in our faith together. And I encourage you to pray for the faith and endurance of our Readiness 360 team as they learn and lead us forward. I also encourage you to pray and pray hard for our church, not that it will survive and thrive for itself, but that it will grow into a community that truly offers Christ to the world that truly lives out the heavenly call in its life. And I encourage you to pray for yourself, to ask God to give you the guidance, strength, and courage to press on in the race of faith and life. I invite the bells to come forward at this time. They're about to play, and as they prepare... I want to read you the words of Isaiah that inspired the title of the piece they're about to play on Eagle's Wings. I pray that these words will sit in our hearts and strengthen our trust in the grace of God. This is from Isaiah 40, starting at verse 28. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. 
He gives strength to the faint and strengthens the powerless. Even youth will faint and be weary, and the young will fall exhausted. But those who wait for the Lord, those who wait for the Lord, shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint.